You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine and when we're all running about. Today's podcast is for hardcore national security law nerds, not for the faint of heart. Don't say you weren't warned. Our podcast today is the second in our series that deals with the important role of oversight and inspectors general in the area of national security law. While COVID held our attention, the chief judge of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the court that hears requests from the Department of Justice for wiretaps and searches under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, issued an order that directed the DOJ and the FBI to adopt certain policies and procedures to ensure the accuracy of FISAs. Throughout that order, Judge Jeb Boesberg kept referring to the Woods Review and Woods. What did he mean? We know it had something to do with making sure every fact in a FISA application was correct and no fact was withheld that might have an impact on the judge's ruling in any particular FISA. And who was this Woods guy anyway? Was he like Kaiser Sosa from the usual suspects minus the criminal propensity? an apparition, a fictional character who once inhabited the halls of the Department of Justice. And then there was that Department of Justice Inspector General's report on the Carter Page FISA. And again, we kept hearing of this Woods character, the man who established some sort of review of FISA affidavits to make sure that everything in them was truly accurate. Who is Woods? Unraveling that mystery of Michael Woods and the history of FISA accuracy checks today is our frequent guest, Professor Harvey Rishikoff, who is the Director of Policy and Cybersecurity Research and a visiting research professor at the University of Maryland Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security. And he is also the former chair and current senior counselor of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Now, Harvey Rishikoff has worked in a number of three-letter agencies in his time as a national security lawyer. But importantly for today's topic, he served as legal counsel to the deputy director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Harvey, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. And it's a particular pleasure to be here today with the legendary Mr. Woods. I had the pleasure of being able to work with this attorney when I was at the Bureau. And I would say without question, um, I would say one of the the finest attorneys I had the pleasure to work with in a group of wonderful attorneys. But uh, it is appropriate that a procedure has been named after him. And it's hard to imagine, but the original procedure first came in April 5th, 2001, was the original document and memo referred to now as the Woods Memo or Woods Procedures. Wow. So, one, how about that? Those were the salad days, light and airy. <laughs> well, uh, with all of that uh, preface, we're really excited to welcome the Michael Woods to the podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. And uh, uh, surprised that you discovered me uh, in my place of hiding. <laughs> in in very exotic uh, Arlington, Virginia. Um, Michael Woods is now the Associate General Counsel at Verizon, who deals with national security and cyber issues and has FISA expertise. 
And while he worked at the Justice Department and the FBI, he developed the standards for the review of FISA applications. He is appearing on this podcast in his individual capacity today and is not here on behalf of Verizon or the Department of Justice. Definitely want to put the disclaimer up front, although we all have disclaimers that apply to us and you will, you know, careful listeners will hear our, our standard disclaimer at the end, but definitely wanted to make sure that Michael's is up there. Mike Woods uh, has done a lot more than that. Uh, so we're going to hyperlink his bio, but Michael graduated from Harvard Law School and Oxford University in Great Britain. And unlike Kaiser Sosa, he has never orchestrated a truck heist or feigned a limp. So Michael and Harvey, could you take us back in time to April 5th, 2001, more than four months before the September 11th attacks happened and help set the stage for us. What were the FISA issues that were going on then? And, and Michael, why did you develop the FISA accuracy review process we now know as the Woods Review? Well, I'll answer the last question first. Like, like anyone in the FBI, I did it because I was told to. Um, it, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, uh, lawyers uh, in the Bureau have uh, a lot of interesting tasks, and uh, many of them involve cleaning up uh, sticky issues, of which this was certainly one. But um, I think, you know, for, for the listeners on this podcast, it's important, you know, not all of whom may be um, uh, quite as, as uh, uh, old <laughs> as, as Harvey and I, uh, old though well-preserved. Um, uh, it's important to kind of go back and look at what the FISA environment was like uh, prior to 9-11. It would be almost unbelievable, I think, for some people to think, you know, what were the sorts of things we worried about um, in those days? And, uh, you know, one of the things which I I know people have discussed is is the wall, Um, the idea that FISA, if not carefully separated from criminal prosecutions, was, you know, could be used as sort of a subterfuge to get around the, uh, the guarantees of the criminal process. And so we operated national security investigations, counterintelligence, counterterrorism investigations, in almost complete isolation from criminal investigations in those days. And, uh, you know, that, that worked very well in sort of traditional espionage cases. But as we moved through the 1990s and, and terrorism became more of a concern, there started to develop more situations where you had parallel criminal investigations and counterterrorism national security investigations. And so it was an, it was an age of very um, often elaborate procedures to keep those two separate. And uh, it's really that uh, that is the context in which uh, these procedures that I wrote had, had to be done. Um, I don't know if Harvey has more light to shed on that. But <laughs> uh, well, yes, Michael. Um, I think one of the issues that we were confronting back then, as you so eloquently put it, we used to call the wall, that we wanted to make sure that there would not be a back door if we were denied a warrant under the probable cause of Title Three, that we would use the lower standard of a probable cause of an individual being an agent of a foreign power. We didn't wanna have the crossover of the criminal law with intelligence law. And again, as you pointed out in our previous, before we started, that was a more naive time that we were living in. It was a more simple time. It was uh, pre 9-11. 
And one of the aspects that we were emphatic about, which has been raised in some of the cases, is that the FISA application was ex parte, right? We did not have another side represented opposing the submissions of the paper to the FISA court. And so, Michael, you became known that for the procedure, there had to be independent authentication of every individual fact or assertion. And why did you think that was so important in establishing the procedures? Well, as as you know, and I think as, as is the case for a lot of developments in the law, um, we were in a we were in a tight spot, and we needed to get out of it. Um, what what had happened uh, prior to these procedures being written was that you know the FISA declarations at the time. Uh, the the, law, the wall that Harvey's talking about, they were, were you were required to, if there was a parallel criminal investigation, as there was in many of these uh, U.S.-based uh, terrorist organizations or U.S.-based terrorist groups that were being investigated, the FISA declaration had to describe just exactly how that wall was set up in the field office and you know at headquarters. Uh, to, to make sure that you know, there's no way for information to leak uh, one way or the other. Um, and we had a, a group of FISA applications, all related targets. So it was, it was the same information being used in several applications um, in which the description of the wall arrangements in the field offices was not, um, was not accurate. It, it wasn't how it was actually done in the field office. And, um, uh, you know, it, the, the way, as I recall, the way it was actually done in the field office was not quite um, as uh, impermeable as probably the court would have liked at that time. And in addition to that, the applications had contained information from an individual who was or had been uh, a criminal, inf an informant in an FBI criminal investigation. And that fact had not been included in the declaration. So the, the FISA judge was looking at statements made by someone not knowing that that person was also a criminal informant of the FBI and perhaps someone who was receiving some benefit for being a criminal informant. Um, and in the course of discovering this and moving to sort of correct these applications, the, uh, the judge, the chief judge of the FISA court at that time, Judge Lamberth, uh, saw this uh, very differently, not, not as a, a minor error to be corrected, but as, as it was a major error in which information was being submitted to the court, which wasn't accurate. And uh, uh, that became a very big deal. The court, uh, you know, took some steps to, um, as I recall, suspend a whole group of FISAs. Um, and the Justice Department and the FBI uh, were instructed to come up with something to make sure this never happened again. And uh, that something uh, sort of, uh, you know, went through the Justice Department. And interestingly, I think the Justice Department at that time was far less involved in the operations of the FBI than it is today. And one of the reasons that the tasking to write these rules came over to the FBI and eventually landed on me is that, uh, you know, you needed somebody who knew the, the operations of the FBI. And, and I was, at the time, the, the chief of the FBI's National Security Law Unit, um, which I note would have, you know, we, there were about 12 lawyers in that unit. And I don't know, 
was like 150 today. So <laughs> it was a very, very different time, a much, much smaller time. And that's how I ended up writing these rules. It was really to give some comfort to the court that there was some procedure in place that would uh, prevent, you know, this kind of situation from happening again. Um, and um, it did satisfy the court. I, I was made to go brief the full FISA court at their meeting in May of 2001. And so all the FISA judges, there were seven at the time, uh, were sitting there and I had to explain this, answer their questions. And um, uh, that kind of settled the issue for the moment. Um, it's also where they got their name, <laughs> unfortunately. And I think what's very important to come up later, I'm sure in the questions, your procedures required that it would, there would be documented in one places, in one place, one file, all the basis for each factual assertion in an application for approval. So the theory was, as you said, a, a very fulsome notification to the court about all aspects of the sources. And also it should be in one place, one file, easily accessible by someone coming to do a review as to what the factual basis was of the, of the application? Yes and no. Uh, actually, the original procedures covered two areas of information being submitted to the court. The Woods procedures were, were issued in April of 2001. And in the, uh, in the subsequent 18 years, they've been updated a number of times yes. uh, since then. And I think I think they've been expanded a little bit and the formality. So when I wrote them, for example, there was no file uh, that you put all this stuff in. That's, that's a later edition. Um, it's, uh, when I wrote them, there were, there were two questions. And one of them, it's basically said, um, you know, the application's gotta be accurate. And particularly when you're describing things that are happening in the field offices, you need to check with the field office and they need to sign off on the description that you're giving to the court. And when I say you, that, that meant the agents at FBI headquarters who were the actual people who went into the FISA court and, you know, raised their right hand and swore to the accuracy of the declaration. And, you know, those were headquarters-based agents who um, were sort of the representative of a number of field offices getting FISAs. And, and you know, the, the original problem here had been some miscommunication uh, between the field and headquarters, and the procedure said, that can't happen. You've got to have the people who know most about this sign off on whatever it is you're saying. And the second thing is, if somebody's a source, a criminal informant, you have to tell the court. <laughs> and if you don't know, you may not know that they were a criminal informant, so you have to check these databases, which were you know, then current in the FBI. Um, hopefully they've been improved since then. Um, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> You, you know, you have to check these databases and you have to say, you know, certify, I, I checked them. So to the best of my knowledge, this person's not a source. And uh, again, I think in, in subsequent years, that was expanded a bit to include other agencies, uh, uh, which became an issue in the Carter Page FISA. Um, not really an issue in my time. <laughs> you, the information about whether an individual is a source for another agency, to be exact. Right, yes. Right. So those were the those were the two focuses of the original procedures, but as you say, I mean, it really did focus on accuracy and making a, um, a correct representation to the court. 
All right. So, um, Michael, that uh, Harvey, enormous amount of thought um, was obviously given to this process. Um, but that does beg the question why, you know, 20 years hence, literally this month, uh, we stand facing these very same issues again, um, even with crumbled walls and amendments to FISA. Uh, three issues seem to emerge, which is one, how do we create a culture of compliance within the FBI, um, which has been held, uh, which has really held such an exalted position in this country um, for decades? Two, um, are we really in a post-Pike Church type of environment now? And I guess three, can or should Congress actually get together on this to force a legislative solution uh, to whatever perceived infirmities there are in this FISA review process? Well, I'll, I'll take the first one of those about compliance in the FBI. Um, I think when I reread the original document of the Woods procedures, I thought, wow, I mean, you know, here, 19 years ago, I put my finger on the problem that's, that's happening today. What, what foresight? Uh, but but that's, not, that's not really what was happening. I think what it suggests is that there are some perennial issues in this kind of national security operation. Um, going back to Harvey's original comments, you know, it's an ex parte process. In the criminal law, you know, every agent, every prosecutor knows that at the end of the day, there's going to be a trial, there's going to be adversarial proceedings, there are going to be suppression motions. If you do something wrong, if you cut a corner, um, if you fail to do something, all of that comes out in the wash, usually. Um, not always, but, but, but it's, it's, it's a credible deterrent to, to negligent behavior, right? Um, there's nothing comparable in the FISA process. Yeah, the shame factor and the reputational damage that could ensue. Yes, and, and, and losing your case. That's the, you know, you could have an, a years-long investigation. You could, you could actually catch the criminals and, and the case would get thrown out if you didn't, you know, do your Title III um, electronic surveillance correctly. And that's much more attenuated in the world of FISA, you know, because most FISAs never lead to any kind of criminal prosecution. When they do, uh, the rules, the statutory rules of FISA, uh, shield it from um, easy challenge by the defendant. Um, that's rarely, if ever, uh, happened. Um, it's usually FISAs get examined in camera. And so you don't have that as, as, a, as a driver of compliance. So the compliance is really just how well are you following the internal rules? Um, and I think that's kind of a, you know, uh, a challenge that we haven't really, we haven't really cracked the nut on that one yet. Um, and I think, you know, what, what, I, what we didn't include in the description of, of what happened in 2001 is in addition to, uh, you know, becoming quite uh, um, exercised about this issue in the FISAs, Judge Lamberth uh, imposed a penalty. Um, he, he took the agent who had been the affiant, the declarant on, on those FISAs, the headquarters agent, and banned that agent from testifying um, before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court ever again. And, you know, 
if, if a federal court bans you from testifying, that follows you into criminal courts where you would have to disclose that. So he effectively ended that agent's FBI career. Um, and, you know, at the time, some, some thought that was a very harsh penalty. But I can tell you that it reverberated through the, you know, <laughs> the various headquarters units of agents who had to swear to these FISAs. And, um, you know, compliance has to be backed up with something. And uh, in, in that instance, it was the court that uh, uh, did what needed to be done to enforce uh, the, those rules. And I think, you know, that, that, that effect probably would have lasted for a long time. But if you look at the chronology, you know, uh, five months later, you have 9-11. <laughs> and, you know, we were thinking about a whole different set of issues uh, after 9-11. And I think this probably faded a bit in history. As you point, know. Well, I find that Jeb Boesberg's opinion very clearly seemed to restate standards um, just for what it's worth. And we're going to hyperlink that in the notes uh, for our listeners. But he does talk about standards he believes uh, both the Department of Justice and the FBI should follow specific uh, standards, largely drawn from the Inspector General's report. Well, yeah, so that I think for the listeners, there's two opinions that are relevant for this discussion. And the first opinion is the opinion that came out and signed by the judge, Bosberg, on, um, there's one March 4th opinion, and there is a uh, April 3rd opinion. And the opinion of March 4th, um, as you're saying, actually uh, quotes extensively from the a Mikai curate that was submitted by another old friend of the podcast, David Chris, who was appointed to do part of an independent review of the FBI procedures. And he actually uses the phrase of culture of compliance that has to be institutionalized in the Bureau. And then his second opinion is, uh, requires and makes specific requirements so that there will be a more accurate and completeness of the applications. But just for context, what Michael was saying is there were the WIS procedures. Six months later, we get 9-11. And then in February 2003, we get the, over, uh, the FBI oversight report, an interim report by Senators Leahy, Grassley, and Specter, in which they castigate the Bureau for having too high of a standard for probable cause and the denial of the warrant that was involved in the potential of finding the individuals who might have landed the planes into the towers. So it went from you're being too slack to you're being too hard of a standard for the probable cause for a agent of foreign power to now tick the clock forward another 15 years, you become slack again and you are not using the appropriate procedures. So there's been an interesting set of phenomena. I have one agent who says to me, they have spent their entire career even being called up before the Congress explaining how they are cowboys not following rules to then being called up and saying, you guys are not aggressive enough in understanding how to use these warrants. 
So at a certain level, one feels that the oversight requires what it should always be, which is the attorney trying to follow through in a professional manner and being fulsome. And if you notice at the end of the opinion now, the judge has required a number of sworn statements by both the DOJ attorneys and the FBI agents, which is quite fascinating. It's the requiring a much more personal requirement by both the DOJ and the Bureau that the statements that they're making in these ex parte declarations, that they will be held personally accountable, as Michael said, if it turns out it's not true or they've not put all the evidence in front of the court that should be put in front of the court for these particular FISAs to be granted or denied. So let's, uh, let's follow up on that a little bit by, you know, you, you all have discussed the uh, salad days before the 9-11 attack and sort of an accordion, right, of, of expansion and contraction of what the requirements are in order to make your case um, b- before the Pfizer court. Can you, you know, make any predictions um, projecting forward in time? What do you see as the long, the short-term and long-term consequences of the IG's report and uh, these uh, opinions that we're referencing? I, I think that uh, after watching this kind of stuff for 20 years, uh, I can predict that Congress will continue to kind of whipsaw back and forth between you're too lenient, you're, you're too timid, you're a cowboy. That's just what they do. Um, and they, they, you know, whichever way the wind is blowing. And that's not the level at which you, you get a culture of compliance. That's, that's just politics and, and that will continue. Um, I think uh, the thing, for me, it's a really, ba- there's some really basic questions in this, you know. Uh, when I looked at, at the judge's opinion and the sworn declarations that Harvey's talking about, I mean, the, the first thing appropriate for an ABA discussion is, how did we get to the point where a lawyer, an officer of the court, needs to like swear that they're telling the truth to the court? I mean, that's like a fundamental obligation of being an attorney. You know, I, I think you shouldn't, you know, if you're not doing that, you should be up in front of bar counsel. But, you know, any set of rules um, you know, it makes us feel good to layer on more rules. But if if actual consequences aren't doled out, if people aren't held personally accountable, and that means if you do if you do this wrong, something's going to happen to you, or you're going to lose something that's important. Um, that's the key for me. You know, it has to be. Uh, and, you know, way back when it was the court that did that, and I suspect that one of the issues, probably in the intervening. 18 years is, you know, this was not something that was prioritized as far as discipline, you know, um, and uh, if, 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 if an internal FBI investigation discovered you didn't have your Woods file, um, what happened to you? <laughs> Did you say, well, I promise to do it in the next one, or I'm going to fix it now? Um, I, I, I think that at least in the operational culture that, that I was part of, in those times and, and as I've been in and out of since, um, I think there need to be actual consequences to really motivate people. I, you know, you see that in businesses too. It's, it's, it's like, you can't just have the right rules. You need to, there need to be some teeth behind them. And that's, and that's just a challenge in a, 
um, environment like this, where it's so much, so much of this is ex parte, so much of this is classified. Um, and I think, you know, if, if, if we put some consequences behind these rules going forward, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll avoid these problems for as long as those consequences are consistently applied. So there's a number of tensions that these issues raise. First, I think one of the things in, in the day of um, Michael and myself, there was a very strong feeling that the bureau should be apolitical, that there was only one political appointee at the bureau, and that was the director, and that the rest of the institution were career. And whereas as DOJ had many more political appointees in their process and structure. And so what also evolved over this period of time is what would be a horrible thing is the politicization of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I think if that happened, that would be a, a very big blow to our institutional framework of how the investigative procedures, because remember it's the Federal Bureau of Investigation, should go about in order to fight corruption and crime. So I think, Michael, one of the things that I see is, I understand why you're somewhat offended that you have to take an oath of accuracy as an attorney before the court, but I would think it allows people to make it clear, both at DOJ and at the Bureau, that they are not gonna succumb to political pressure to go forward with this unusual procedure, which is a secret court. And we've also, as you know, created five amici who are appointed to the court and they can represent the interests of the ex in the situation in this five. So we've gone with that type of reform. But the other aspect is uh, this requires constant vigilance. And I think it's quite fascinating that the court has also required the Bureau to um, actually create a case study of the events that took place in order for that to be taught at Quantico, our training location, so that there's a case so they understand that they have to analyze all the steps of that particular FISA application and to renewals, to show FBI's, the personnel, the errors, admissions, failures, to follow policy, communication breakdowns, so shut the new and revised policy and procedural apply so the mistakes of the past are not repeated. What constantly requires, as, an, as you can imagine, and wearing my teacher hat, how cool that there's gonna have to be special case studies taught at Quantico <laughs> about the failure in the FISA context. And I think they also talk about, the judge talks about the randomness of an unpredictability of the reviews that should take place uh, of the cases. So another, as part of our IG function, the Bureau should be comfortable with someone walking in and saying, you just made this Faisal application. We wanna make sure the original Woods and rejuvenated Woods applications and procedures have been followed and you should be able to produce it pretty quickly for us and not be able to hide behind some bureaucratic process or a failure of filing. This is sort of, we're gonna give so much discretionary power to such an entity. I think we have to demand that level 
of uh, review and perfection in order for us to go forward in order to have confidence in the role of the Bureau. We always had a creative tension between DOJ and the Bureau because as we pointed out, the Attorney General serves at the pleasure of the President. We used to think that it required cause to remove the director of the FBI, but it's <laughs> unclear anymore if that standard that we lived under is gonna be carried forward in future administrations. Well, as Joel Brenner called it, not a standard, but a norm. A norm, yes. Whether that norm will, will be reconstituted going forward for our democratic institutions. I'm, I'm wondering if I have a, a, a sort of side gig here going down to Quantico and explaining this. Uh. <laughs> I'm happy to represent you and making sure that you have a new line of effort that can help as contribution for public service. You know, I will say that I, I was once in the Bureau headquarters on maybe company business and an agent came up and, and asked me if I would sign his Woods form. And I said that, you know, I, I don't think it's actually valid. <laughs> but, well, I would say among a certain number of Colorado, you are a rock star. You're sort of like a Mick Jagger of the legal <laughs> FISA community. Yes, among a very people. small, very odd group of people, yes. But nonetheless, a very influential group of people, given the power that they hold, Michael. I, yeah. <laughs> I think you're, you're right, actually, about that, of course, but about and other things. In general, I would hope, yeah. Um, although there's another tension in all of that, that, that these, that the IG's investigation raises and, you know, you know, from the beginning of FISA, the idea of depoliticizing the process or insulating against politics was, there's a whole reason you have to get very high level people to sign, uh, to the purpose of the FISA, the intelligence purpose. But the other tension there is like, how do those people know that? Um, you know, there's also a danger that they're simply relying on everything that gets passed up to them. And I think what the IG's investigation, another thing it revealed is that something can go wrong at a very low level. Someone can change a detail in an email or, or not do this or not do that. And, you know, it goes up the certification chain. By the time it gets to the person who's got the kind of larger view and would say, there's a problem in this, you know, the easiest course for them is just to rely on what was presented to them. Um, now, I think you, you see in some of the reports, the idea is that, you know, someone at Justice actually did, in some cases, say, wait a minute, we should take a closer look. Um, but I think that is an issue with, you know, the compliance can't just be, we're going to add more review by peer, people higher up the chain or people across the street at DOJ. You, you really have to, it has to be full spectrum. It has to be, you know, that agent submitting that data is is very faithful to, um, you know, what the data is telling them when they present to the attorney. And then that, you know, it, it has to be at every stage of the way, I think. Um, or you just, you know, sometimes these processes can just run um, and, the, and the discretionary oversight function gets lost. Um, right. Yeah. So it has to be more than check the box. Yes. And also, if there's a bad seed, because as you know, many of my closest friends are FBI agents and they all are extraordinary Americans. Yes. <laughs> uh, but if you do find a bad seed, as you said, who is manipulating emails, changing the evidence electronically, 
uh, a one would hope that we're going to be putting into enough artificial intelligence and review we'll be able to see those technological changes in some going forward in the future and b like i think uh the judge in the original cases those individuals should suffer an extraordinary penalty given the trust we put in them which might be career ending penalties for agents who are supposed to be doing affiance and are manipulating the evidence that is just intolerable uh, in a system that we're going to believe is going to be accountable and is going to be able to be the basis of what we understand are the most evasive investigations that we can actually pursue that the Bureau can run. So I think that's rather important. And the idea, randomly, IG should be able to come in periodically and say, well, I want to have all the evidence. And one of the issues in the case is that the Bureau contended they may have had substantial support of those assertions, but they weren't in the file that was looked at by the IG. Right. Well, that just is not, uh, to use the legal French phrase, kosher, uh, <laughs> to, be able to be able to say, oh, it's somewhere in our vast building. No, this should be significant enough that everything should be easily accessible that is going to underwrite that particular warrant. Well, I just had two thoughts to that. One is uh, there's some little piece of me that, that, that shudders when, when anything with respect to the FBI, a technological solution is suggested. Um, uh, the, the, the Bureau has not been the most successful user of technology, I can say, uh, uh, from experience. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, we can't lose sight. There, there always has to be kind of a balance struck because, you know, I, when I think back at the agents that I have known, uh, some of the very best of them, uh, I would say, you know, honest, upstanding, but, but not really the best uh, file clerks, you know, <laughs> the, the keeping the crossing the I's and dotting the T's, not always their, their, their leading attribute. And, and sometimes you need people like that and uh, they get you good results, but uh, you know, I, I guess the Bureau can, you know, you, you have to strike a balance between those sorts of people and, you know, I guess lawyers. <laughs> well, you know, many of the Bureau, I would say what you need to create as, as I think David Chris put forward and what the judge is saying, you need to create that interaction between the operators and the legal reviewers presenters before the court. So it's much more seamless and there's much more of a review. And, and that's why these declarations that both the, the agent and the DOJ uh, attorney are gonna have to make in order to make it clear that if it turns out they are not being truthful, these will be career ending moments for them in the Bureau or the Department of Justice, as I think they will should be. Wow. Okay. Well, on that, um, on that note, I just want to say, uh, Michael, um, I'm glad I finally had a chance to meet you through this process. Um, your name is bantied about by you know, lots of national security lawyers. You're a legend, to, to say the least. I'm glad you're not a fictional persona, but a real guy with real hands-on experience and institutional knowledge. And Harvey, you are always a delight, phone pinging or not. You're always fun and brilliant. We're so glad you're here. Come back soon, both of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, I, I don't disagree <laughs> with your assessment, uh, Elizabeth, as you can imagine vis-a-vis -vis Michael. Yeah, I don't think I'm a legend. I, 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 no, I, question, <laughs> no question. No question. <laughs> well, thank you both again. And thank you to our listeners as well. If you are new to this area of law, we're also going to hyperlink the FISA statute, which you can find at 50 USC 1801 and forward. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. We'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice and be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. So find us on Twitter at ADA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Feel free to suggest national security law topics and speakers you'd like to hear from. So we're going to stay here doing whatever we can to keep you informed and give you context on fast moving legal developments in the national security law space. So you don't have to search very far for it. And we said this at the top of the show, but it always bears repeating. The lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back <laughs> next week with content. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we have to be apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.